I'm going to speak with David and Jason Benham about their brand new book. They'll talk about being broken and yet bold. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown, your voice, moral sanity and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society and chaos in a church all too often in compromise. Bottom of the hour, I'm going to be joined by David and Jason Benham, great guys with a great story and a great new book. But the first half hour of the broadcast, phone lines are open. I've got some scriptural things I want to share with you, something I think you'll find very interesting and eye-opening, but you can ask me a question about anything under the sun. You can call and give me your piece of your mind. If you're upset with me about something, you want to talk about it, let it out, vent, whatever's on your mind, any subject that is relevant to the broadcast, 866-348-7884. That is the number to call, and I'll get to some calls in the coming minutes. All right. Every so often... I'll hear about a fascinating, amazing Jewish tradition that I never heard of in my entire life. And it will be coming from some Christian source or some popular online source. So immediately I raise my eyebrows because I never heard of that. I never saw that. Now, here's the caveat. There's a lot of tradition in Judaism. There's what's called Yam HaTalmud, the Sea of the Talmud that all of the rabbinic literature is massive and there's so much to learn. So there are plenty of things that I just never heard of that may be popular Jewish traditions I'm unaware of or Jewish interpretations I've never seen. But when they're that important and that theologically significant, I often wonder, hmm, is this bogus? Now, you said, well, just check the source. That's the whole thing. Most of the time there are not sources. For example, I heard for years that one of the signs of the Messiah, coming of the Messiah in the Talmud and rabbinic literature, was that he would heal someone that was born blind and that he would heal a leper. So the various ones that Jesus heals in the Gospels, these were signs that, that he was the Messiah because Jewish tradition said to expect this. And I, I'd heard it many times, but I'd never seen it, never found a source for it talked to learned rabbi friends of, of mine. They had never heard of it. Searched all the literature I could, uh, it, all the literature I had online so I could just search for Mashiach, Messiah, and never found it. And to this day, I've not found a source to back it. Then I found someone quoting from a certain book, and they all seemed to be quoting from the same book. And I went back to the book, and the book had no source. So I've heard this teaching recently, protesting Craig Keener and I have talked about the last trumpet. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Uh, we'll begin in verse 50. Paul writing to the Corinthians, Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and what decays cannot inherit what does not decay. decay. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet or last shofar. For the trumpet, the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. So those who hold to a pre-trib rapture say, yeah, that's, that's the pre-trib rapture that's separate from the second coming. I say, no, that is the second coming. That's what happens at the second coming, that the Lord appears in public suddenly with the blast of the trumpet, and that we are caught up to meet him in the air, and we are now his entourage escorting him as he comes to earth. It's one and the same event. Rapture is part of the second coming, not something separated by seven years or three and a half years, etc. And one of the arguments that Professor Keener and I raise in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, which again is written in an ironic spirit, recognizing that within the body there are fine people who differ over this issue so we don't divide over it, nor do we castigate those who differ. We honor them as fellow servants in the Lord, and we have a respectful difference. But we point out that you have, for example, Matthew 24, the Messiah coming with the sound of the trumpet blast. So one of our arguments is, if it's the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, then how can you have a significant trumpet associated with the second coming seven years after the last trumpet? And you have a succession of seven trumpets in the book of Revelation culminating in the seventh trumpet in the 11th chapter of Revelation, where it's announced the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah, and he'll reign forever and ever. So how... Can you then have seven trumpets? Well, the culminating seventh trumpet after the last trumpet. No, the last trumpet is the seventh of seven. The last trumpet is the trumpet of the Lord's return. It's, that's how we know it's one of the same event. One of many ways we know it's one of the same event. I actually had a caller. He was disappointed that I, of all people, didn't understand what this was really saying. No, no, no. This is not the last trumpet, meaning there's no trumpet afterwards. What it is, it's, it's the last trumpet blast or shofar blast on Yom Truah, the day of the sounding of the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, which in Judaism becomes Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. But the argument is that you have a series of, of blasts, a total of 100 sounds, and the last one, Tekiah so the last great blast, that's called the last trumpet. So it's just saying he's coming in conjunction with the Feast of Trumpets. That's all that it means. There's only one problem. I have not found anywhere in all of traditional Jewish literature where Tikiagadola is called the last trumpet or the last shofar. I've not found any support for it. However, my knowledge, like everyone else's, is limited. So I contacted an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, one of the most learned rabbis I know. And I said to him, is it true? Because I've never heard this myself. Is it true that in traditional Judaism, the last of the trumpet blast is called the, the last trumpet or last shofar, and he said, no, never heard that in my life. He said, however, the trumpet of Yom Kippur, the last shofar blast, the shofar blast on Yom Kippur, which from a pre-trib mentality is at the end of the tribulation period, the day of atonement, okay? So pre-trib teachers say, this is the end, right? This is later. He said, that's associated with the trumpet blast in Isaiah 27 and the coming of the Messiah. So according to everything I know, the whole thing is a myth. It does not exist. No one has ever taught 
that that last specific trumpet blast on Yom Truah, on the day of the sounding of the trumpet, was called the last trumpet, and that that's what Paul was referring to. Yes, Messiah is coming in conjunction with the trumpet blast. He's, he's coming in conjunction with Feast of Trumpets. Yes, but it's not a pre-trib coming. He's coming with the sound, <laughs> excuse me, of the trumpet that is spoken of in Matthew 24. There is one last trumpet, not one last trumpet and seven years later, another trumpet, not one last trumpet and then seven major trumpets. No, no, the last trumpet is the last trumpet, just like the last day is the last day. <clears throat> so sorry to burst the bubble. And if you claim, no, 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 I have a, so, no, I, I don't mean quoting another author today. Show me the rabbinic source that says that Tikiagodola, the last of the blasts of the shofar on Yom Truah, on the Feast of Trumpets, that that is called the last trumpet. Show me an ancient traditional Jewish source to that effect. Of course, you want it to be ancient enough that Paul would have known about it and the Corinthians would have had an idea about it. Some of them came to faith in the synagogue that they would have heard about it. <clears throat> if you find it, great. I'll be corrected and my friend will be corrected. I don't believe it exists. I don't believe it exists. Happy to be wrong. And, and by the way, it, it's still odd that the last trumpet is then succeeded, uh, followed by seven other trumpets uh, and a great trumpet blast of the Messiah. Now, someone said on the air the other day, well, there's the trumpet that Yeshua is going to sound. And the other one's sounded by an angel. First, there's not a distinction that's made. Yes, Zechariah speaks of God sounding the trumpet. Because I said to Cole, where does it say Yeshua is going to sound the trumpet? So where it says that the Lord is going to sound the trumpet, Zechariah 9, it could mean the Father, could mean the Son. It, it never explicitly in the New Testament says Jesus blows the trumpet. That's why I was wondering where the caller got that from. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jesse in Arizona. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I wanted to ask a question and a quick follow-up, if that's all right. Yeah. All right. So about your views on some Christians who are traditional oriented and end up abandoning Protestantism due to weak ties of 16th century reformers traditions and think that the original church is either Catholic or Orthodox from apostolic position, liturgical rituals, salvific works-based sacraments, and, and those claims that those things are essentials of the gospel. Isn't that antithetical with the gospel? such as when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees or the Judaizers were rebuked in Acts or the Epistles, like Hebrews 10, 1 points out that religious rituals or liturgical practices like circumcision and Sabbath worship weren't bad, but only shadows of things to come and what they represent. Yeah, so uh, obviously you have a position in, in, in asking your question. We recognize the importance of water baptism. We recognize the importance of communion. And, and we certainly recognize that every group— has some kinds of traditions. The question is, are the traditions good? Are they divinely inspired? Are they neutral? Are they bad? And I, I once heard a quote from church historian James Park, or read the quote, that Catholicism is no more the religion of the New Testament than Judaism is the religion of the Old Testament. And it's very true. The reason that I'm not Roman Catholic, the reason that I'm not Greek Orthodox, is because I do not believe in the validity of those church traditions. Now, some of them are fine and beautiful and edifying and life-giving, and you take advantage of them and you're blessed by them. But ultimately, I do find things that in those traditions either add to the gospel on some level or distort the gospel or dilute the gospel or mistake 
the authority of the word for the authority of human tradition. And, and I don't believe in the reality of the apostolic <clears throat> succession that's argued for. And fairly early on, the church really lost sight of its Jewish roots. So I respect my born again brothers and sisters who are Roman Catholic and who are Greek Orthodox that have come to faith to know the Lord the same way I do. But I believe that many of these traditions can get in the way and that some of them are, are absolutely blatantly wrong. All right. So your follow up real quick and then I'll, well, answer on the other side of the break. And, um, doesn't, doesn't, don't, you know, Catholic and Orthodox create, uh, the same problem that the Judaizers created? uh, Yeah. So, so this would be the thing. If you are saying it's the gospel plus our tradition to be saved, or only our tradition exculpates the gospel, then I have a real problem with it. That's where I would really differ. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. Let's go to Clifton in North Chesterfield. North Chesterfield where? I don't have the state. Oh, Virginia. Okay, got it. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Uh, the scriptures say uh, to call no man father, uh, but yet it, it's used so much throughout scripture. Um, is there another name that they use in the Torah? No, Other call no man father. father. It, it doesn't mean that you don't call your own earthly father father. It, it means that you should not be using that in terms of your spiritual father as a title, because that, that belongs to God, but everyone's called father, you know, Abba, Avi, my father, that's, yeah, you call your earthly father, father, and you can recognize someone as a spiritual father, a father in the faith. But as far as a, a using it as a title, uh, I know it's the Catholic style to call the priest father. I, I, I would rather not do that. I think it's better that we recognize that we're all brothers and sisters in that respect. That was Jesus point. In, in Matthew 23, but calling your earthly father, father, we're supposed to do that. You honor your father and your mother. So that's throughout the Bible, and that's exactly how it is in the Torah. What, what Yeshua's point is in Matthew 23, again, is in terms of a spiritual honor uh, that belongs only to God or a setting someone above the others and, and forgetting that we are all equals in that sense in the Lord, that we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and there's not a human being who's a mediator between man and God. That would be the emphasis there, sir. But thank you for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Shane in Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Um, yeah, I just wanted to bring up the topic of speaking in tongues and mm-hmm. uh, the Pentecostal church that I had joined um, it was a real small backwards church in Georgia. They were coming down here to Florida after I already had been saved. I didn't know much of the Bible. You know, there were King James only people, and I ran away with them because I wanted to find a place to seek the Lord away from all temptations and everything. But the point I'm getting at that their entire doctrine implied that the Holy Ghost comes with the evidence of tongues 
and like over an eight month period, they put me on the stand four or five times saying I was going to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, what does that imply? That means I don't have the Spirit of God within me, right? And reading Romans chapter 8, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to God. So, And what that did, it left me vulnerable to the devil, and I had to go through paranoid schizophrenia, and I was tormented by, tormented by Satan himself for years over this. So um, I just wanted to pick your brain on that. And a word yeah, of warning to the church, for, yeah, be for, careful yeah. how you present that. Yeah, it's 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 a terrible shame that you went through that. And there are yeah. some Pentecostals that have taught that. And the, the UPC, which is totally fringe and in certain ways not, not in the faith, in other ways uh, on the border, uh, that, that teach Jesus only, Jesus is the Father, Son, and Spirit, they teach that you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. So that puts people mm-hmm. under tremendous pressure. That that uh, brings them into all kinds of bondage. It also makes it very easy to have a counterfeit experience where someone feels pressure to manufacture something. So I understand where they're coming from. For example, Paul asks in Acts 19, he asks the believers that he meets in Ephesus, did you receive the Spirit when you mm-hmm. were saved? All right, so the beginning of that chapter, Acts 19, he, a- he asked them, meaning did you receive the empowerment of the spirit, right? So while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul traveled through the upper region, came to Ephesus, he found some disciples and said to them, did you receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, when you believed? They replied to him, no, we've never even heard there is a Ruach HaKodesh. We haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit. So he wanted to be sure that they had received the empowerment of the spirit, that they had been immersed in the spirit and, and a sign would be speaking in tongues and a manifestation of spiritual gifts and something like that. So there is a distinction between being indwelt by the Spirit, which happens the moment that we're born again, and then receiving the empowerment of the Spirit. That's, that's why Pentecostals speak of what's called a second experience. So you're saved, you're born again, you have eternal life, you're forgiven, you're a child of God, but now there's, there's a spiritual empowerment that God gives. Others say, no, it all happens the moment you're saved. But what's important to teach is this, Shane, the moment you're saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The moment you're right. saved, the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. The moment that you right. are saved, in that sense, you have the Holy Spirit. He dwells with you. He leads you. He guides you. He speaks to you. He instructs you, etc. Now, we can debate, is there a subsequent empowering of the Holy Spirit, as Pentecostals have classically believed, and as I was taught when I came to faith, so I was saved at the end of 71, but then baptized in the Spirit, spoke in tongues, January 24th of 1972. So you could say it's a subsequent experience of empowerment with a manifestation of tongues or prophecy or spiritual gifts, or people believe the moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit touches you, fills you, now you have to walk in the fullness of that. Either way, let's agree that the moment you're born again, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and that there is an empowering God has where he wants to manifest his gifts through us so that he can be glorified and we can be edified. Uh, it, it's, right, and it I, does I hate say the to fact... seek the uh, spiritual gifts. And just to clarify your position, so you're saying me as a born-again believer had the Spirit of God within me when I was at that Pentecost church, but I might have not had the gift of empowerment. Is that what your position right, is? Right, right. A subsequent empowerment of the Spirit. So 
again, that that's how I understand right, and the how scripture. they presented it. They they you know they're oh, they presented it in a way that's terrible, they never they terrible. never pointed at me and said you don't have the spirit of God. I don't it want to impl- it was implied, that. but it was implied. But it was implied it's a terrible, absolutely. It's a terrible teaching. It it is look, when you're born again, you're born you're as born again as you're ever gonna be. When you're born again, yeah, you're indwelt by the Spirit, you're forgiven, like you're when, saved, when I first, declared righteous at first, that moment. Yeah. Yeah, when I first begged the Lord Jesus to fill the void, I'm just telling the truth here. I witnessed our Lord in His full glory like they did on the Mount Transfiguration. That's where my faith came from, and that's why I wanted to go seek Him in a refuge. You know what I mean? So I, I was given by the Father to the Son the moment I came to Him and was filled with the Spirit of God. Yep. And that's my that's my testimony. Yeah. Well, Shane, thank God he kept you. I, I hate the fact that you were taught wrongly and put under carnal pressure. The people may have been well-meaning, but they they hurt you deeply. And obviously it became an open door for the enemy to attack. Thank God you've come through it. And thank God that, that you love the Lord. And, and listen, we're saved by God's grace, not by our best efforts. So thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to James on Long Island. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, I have been studying, and I call you quite frequent, uh, frequently. Uh, I come to, to I, I, I'm trying to get an understanding. In the book of Genesis, when, when is there any correlation? Because uh, I know in the, in the Old Testament, there is this thing we call in uh, Christianity, foreshadowing of the Christ. When 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 uh J- when Jacob was fighting the angel, mm-hmm. was that a physical battle, or was it more like him wrestling with the idea that he's gonna go face Esau, so he had to accept God being the guide in his life that he must go just same way Abraham had to uh, obey God when he had to offer um, Isaac. Now when I'm looking at Jesus praying in the garden, it says that he was so stressed. Now, one of the pastors said, I don't believe that's what he was, but he said Jesus was so stressed he was suicidal. I don't, I don't believe that's what he was. But he was under a lot of stress that the sweat of his body become blood. Is there any connection? And was the fight of Jacob and the angel, who I believe to be Jesus, was it a physical fight? Because how could the angel touch him with two fingers and dislocate his hip? And then he wrestled with him all night. Was that an actual physical fight? Right. So or is there a deeper meaning to it? Well, yeah, uh, James, it's it's certainly a physical fight. In other words, in his mind, he's wrestling with a man who then he perceives as some kind of divine being. And yes, you could argue that it is the Son of God that was there with him in Genesis, the 32nd chapter. And that's how he's able to just touch him and dislocate his hip. And Jacob walks with a limp thereafter. But the whole thing was a spiritual battle. The whole thing is Jacob wrestling with God to get to that point of saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. So it is coming to that point of spiritual desperation because Jacob was a conniver. Jacob would always find a way to, you know, if you couldn't get in the front door, he'd get in the side door. You know, if he didn't have the money, he'd borrow it or steal it, you know, to put it in contemporary terms. And, and he made, he made it work. It was God's blessing plus a lot of flesh, and now nothing was going to work. And he thought, my whole family is going to be slaughtered by, by my brother Esau. And he was left alone with God, and that's when he had his breakthrough. So the great spiritual lesson is right there. He got to that point of utter dependence, 
where he couldn't let go. If to let go would be to die because he couldn't let go, he wouldn't let go. And then afterwards he says, it's Peniel, the face I've seen, the face of God. I've wrestled with God. Hosea 12 tells us he wrestled with an angel, a divine messenger, who, yes, we understand this is a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah, of, of the Son of God in human flesh. So it's a great spiritual battle, but it was played out physically in an absolutely exhausting way. And it gives us a picture of wrestling and prayer. And of course, Jesus was not so stressed that he was suicidal. He was in an earnest spiritual battle. And as the sweat poured from his face, it was his, as it were, drops of blood. All right, right back, friends, with the Benner Brothers. Stay here. Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. The Line of Fire, this is Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us, 866-34-TRUTH. I am going to be joined shortly by the Benham brothers. They've gotten tied up a little bit delayed in getting here. But you know what that means? It means I can take another phone call or two. So let's just see who we've got here. All right, let's uh, let's go over to Daniel in Brooklyn. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, I've talked to you before. Uh, I've seen uh, one of your debates with Rabbi Shmuley in uh, New York. It was uh, really, really enjoyable. Great. And uh, I just wanted to follow up with a quick question. Um, in New York, I talked to a lot of different uh I guess what you would term cult groups. Um, so one of them that I've encountered is the Black Israelites, and my question is not about uh, that per se, but I found out that they believe we have to keep the whole law. So they believe in Jesus, yet they believe we have to keep the whole law. So I've had long, long conversations about the law. We've read Acts 15 and uh, Matthew, <clears throat> or Galatians chapter 3, and so they... Uh, they continue to ask me, they say, why does Jesus say, um, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and if you teach even, uh, if you teach even a child to break even the least of these commandments, that, uh, that you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, yeah, so, my question is why, yeah. So first, go through John's gospel with them, all right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And look for the word entele, commandment. Look at every single time it occurs. In no case is it referring back to the Ten Commandments or Old Testament commandments. It's talking about his teaching. Love one another as I have loved you, those things. So he's talking about his commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. He's not talking about Torah there. He's talking about my commandments. But do a study. Say, okay, let's, let's look up the word every time entele, commandment, occurs in the Gospel of John. You'll see he's talking about the commandments that he himself gives. So that's mm, that's so, there. All right. Yeah, so I, I actually said that to him because I had heard a, a, a video of yours in the past that really uh, gave some good insights. And then uh, what they said to me is, listen, Jesus says not one jot or tittle will pass away. Right, right. I, I was going so to gonna get to that passage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, right. So I'm, I'm just saying we've got to take his words in context. Now, now by the way, I don't right. think that there's openness— 
because they don't have a born again experience in the Lord and there's all kinds of deception and confusion that, I mean, you can try talking to them. I don't know that you're going to find a lot of openness. All right. However, that, that being said, that being said, oh, we got guys just breaking in here, running through, getting in the way of the camera as if we're not even doing live radio TV show here. That's fine. This, when you're the Benham brothers, that's, you just think you can come in and do what you want to do. It's not a problem. But uh, Daniel, just to finish answering your, your question, sir, uh, Matthew five seventeen to 20, where Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill. How does he fulfill it? For example, why aren't we offering blood sacrifices? Why aren't we going to a physical temple in Jerusalem? Why don't we need a physical earthly priesthood? Why aren't we keeping many, many, many other commandments? Why aren't we stoning people to death that don't observe the Sabbath and stoning disobedient children, et cetera, et cetera? So bottom line is, bottom line is that he brings to fulfillment the sacrificial system, everything having to do with approach for God, atonement, et cetera, through his own death, through his own blood. He takes other things to a higher level and other things now they are put in their proper place to teach and instruct. And also there's nowhere ever in the New Testament where Gentiles were called to be under the Sinai covenant. So a good thing to do is show them how they don't keep it themselves and then ask them, why don't you do this, this, this? The moment they admit to any change of any kind, change in priesthood, on what basis is the Messiah priest if he's not of the line of, of Aaron? The moment they admit to any change, you have to say, okay, so we agree that change has come. Every word is important, but it doesn't mean that we are under the full Sinai covenant. Hey, got to run. My guests are now in studio, but thanks for calling a subject we can talk about more. And friends, if you're on hold, uh, we'll do our best to get you your calls tomorrow and Friday. With that, David and Jason, welcome guys. Great to have you here. Thanks for having us, Dr. Brown. It's, it's an honor. David's fault we're late, Dr. B. Yeah, well, that, I assume that. You didn't need to say that part. <laughs> Thank uh, you. All right. Were the tacos good though? They're worth stopping for? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> not true. Maybe not. Oh, okay. For for those, uh, and and by the way, uh, just uh, I've got guys in here, but you can't see them in studio. So I'm going to be looking right at this camera, right between the, the Benham brothers. But for those that, that haven't followed your, your life and your, your, your ministry, uh, just give us a quick synopsis of who you guys are and what it is that God's called you to do these days. Okay, well, this is David speaking. I am the older of the identical twins, and I'm much better looking and smarter. But anyway, Jason and I, we uh, grew up. Our, our dad was a pastor. We ended up uh, signing baseball scholarships to play baseball at Liberty University. We went there, played, ended up getting drafted. I was with the Red Sox. Jason was with a lesser organization, the Baltimore Orioles. I don't even know if you've ever heard of them before. But anyway, we played minor league baseball, finished in the Cardinals organization. And uh, when we got out, we decided to uh, come to Charlotte, North Carolina, specifically Concord, right where we're located here. And, um, and we started a real estate company. We didn't have any business training. Our dad was a pastor, but we had read through the scriptures many times uh, as young men growing up. And uh, so we had biblical principles. And by God's grace, in 2012, we had 100 offices across 35 states. And, and that's when TLC came to us and made us an offer for a reality show. And this was right when uh, Duck Dynasty was hot and uh, a lot of other reality shows were hot on families. And so they saw my brother and I and the fact that we were in real estate, but we also were identical. And then we also had families. We live on the same street. I'm married to Lori and Jason's married to Tori. We did not try that on purpose. But um, I have five kids. Jason has four. 
So they made us an offer, and while we were negotiating with TLC, HGTV came in, made us a a straight-to-series offer. They said, we're going to bypass the pilot. At this point, they had just signed Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, the Fixer Upper family, wonderful couple, great family. And uh, and so they... While they signed us, they just piloted uh, Fixer Upper and then started uh, running our show called Flip It Forward. We were running commercials, and just before it aired in the fall of 2014, Right Wing Watch heard that Jason and I were uh, getting a show with HGTV. So did GLAAD, and these activist organizations then provided a brand new story. They just and pulled things out of air and said, hey, these brothers are hateds and haters and bigots and whatever phobes. And, and they sent that over to HGTV, and HGTV for a week fought for us. They said, no, that's not true. This is a narrative that's been written about these brothers simply because they're pro-life and they're pro-marriage. And, and they, HGTV behind closed doors was on the phone with us saying, hey, guys, listen, a lot of people believe just like you do here at HG. We just don't talk about it. So don't worry about it. You're going to be stars on this network. We'll get past this. Well, unfortunately, they couldn't get past it because what Jason and I now know, it's a thought mafia that's out there. If you disagree with the radical left, you're going to be bullied into submission. And if they can't get guys like us to submit uh, and begin to celebrate and participate in the lifestyles and the, and the, the different types of things they want us to participate in, um, then they'll just target the networks or anybody that would even dare give you a platform. So that's what they did. They went after HGTV, hostile social media takeover. HGTV called us, had a conference call with the big dogs, and and as a matter of fact, the general manager was crying on the phone. She said, I can't believe this is happening to you mm. and your brother, but we have to cancel the show. So we said, listen, we love you. Thank you for believing in us. But we know there's an agenda out there, and, and we called it a Goliath agenda, like this big beast that nobody wants to fight. And we said, we are not backing down because these values that we live for, the scriptures that we read, bring life. They bring healing. They bring blessing. And if you remove those boundaries that God gives us, then those blessings are replaced with burdens. We went on 200 one-on-one interviews over a three-week period of time, and the next thing you know, we wrote a book. It became a bestseller. And and now we travel the country, and we encourage uh, Christians, we encourage just any decent American that loves our freedoms to stand up for whatever the cost and to be a voice. So, so Jason, you guys have now co-authored a, a few books, uh, a couple of them I've read more carefully and, and more familiar with, but just go through the books that you've written and uh, tell us about your newest one, why, why this is different than all you've written so far. Well, we might almost be caught up with you now. What, what are you writing on book number 85 now? Uh, 30, 36. 36? 36, <laughs> yes. 36, 85, whatever. That's if you amazing. multiply that, if you divide that by nine, that's how many we've now written. We just finished our fourth. Go yes, ahead. Okay. we did. We finished our fourth. So right after we got fired by HGTV, we wrote, uh, uh, we co-authored a book, Whatever the Cost, basically detailing that story, teaching Christians you know, through our story to face your fears, die to your dreams, and live powerfully. And uh, and our second book, that, and that, that book was essentially our story, but our second book was Living Among Lions, How to Thrive Like Daniel in Today's Babylon. That's helping believers write their story. Mm-hmm. Our third book, it was a really fun kind of autobiographical book about our baseball story called Miracle in Shreveport, really teaching, uh, showing Christians how prayer works and how God is always behind the scenes putting the pieces of the puzzle together, even when it seems dark, even when you don't know what he's doing. He's doing something, and you can trust him, and that was a 20-year period of our life and of our lives. And then this fourth book that we just released in February of this year is called Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. And that's a real stand-in-the-gap book. 
And uh, I remember when we started to write that book, I remember thinking about you, Ezekiel 22, I searched for a man who would stand yeah. in the gap. And, uh, and, and of course God said, but, but, uh, but I found no one. And you've always been that guy for David and I, that's, that's kind of stood in the gap and been that mentor of ours. And when we wrote that book, I remember when we first started writing it, we started to think and pray through what it meant about standing in the gap and, and what, what's the gap that, that, that actually exists. And I think so many people take it for granted. Oh, there's a gap that exists in culture. But as we begin to pray through that, I remember praying the Lord's Prayer, and I got to the first part where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I did a full stop right there, and I thought, well, there's the gap. Mm. There's a gap between heaven and earth. And we know that Jesus ultimately filled that gap through the, his death, burial, and resurrection with the cross. But he's teaching us to continue to pray that. So it's not just a prayer. It's about participation, that God wants to continue to bridge that gap through believers, to bridge the gap between God and the people who are disconnected from him. And so we wrote this book, Bold and Broken, that when culture begins to rise up against God and begins to stand against your faith, that believers need to stand strong and stand boldly for him. But there are ditches on both sides of the road because boldness apart from brokenness makes you a bully. So that's the bully is the one ditch that you can fall into. When it's, it's Peter when he grabbed the sword, when he was startled awake, and the enemy was upon Jesus and was going to take him to the cross. Peter wakes up and grabs the sword. He's ready to be a bully. <clears throat> but then you've got the ditch on the other side, which is brokenness apart from boldness makes you a bystander. Mm. And this is Peter in the courtyard. This was yeah, after yeah. he had already been broken, but he's like, uh, I'm not sure Jesus is who I thought he was, and I don't even know who I am. And he, he became a bystander, and he wasn't willing to actually even admit that he was a disciple of Jesus because he was scared of how he'd be labeled or how he'd be treated. So you've got the bystander on one side, or the bully on the other, and the bridge is the next one. All right, Bold and Broken, the new book by David and Jason Bennett. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends. I am in studio with my dear friends, David and Jason Benham, and, uh, They've got a brand new book, Bold and Broken. And one of the things I like best about their books, I mean, there's the back and forth banter, just like you get with them, but they are really positive, uplifting guys. They know the truth. They're burdened by the truth. They've been on the front lines of the pro-life movement really their entire lives. And, and, and God is using them in significant ways. They, they face real problems. They know the pressures of the business world. They're family men. And yet their books are full of life, encouragement, and are super practical. You, get, you break things down in practical ways and give people steps they can take. So it, it, you, you're not just going to get inspired, but you'll, you'll be given a path to take to make a difference. So check out the new book, Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. David, a, a lot of stuff is happening in the pro-life movement now, and I, I want you to talk about an event about to take place uniquely with the unplanned movie coming out with some of the pushback against extreme laws. Uh, are you seeing something different, a mobilizing of God's people that you haven't seen through your life? 
Yes, Jason and I have been in this for a long time. I, I remember back when we were teenage kids and our dad, would we would do uh, sidewalk counseling and ministry in front of abortion clinics. And, and in 1991, there were 2,100 freestanding abortion clinics in America. Today, there are less than 600. Mm. Um, and, and also, not only do we have Scripture clearly on our side, but we have science. I mean, the science is finally catching up with the Bible. Yeah. And when you look at a 4D live ultrasound, when you begin to see, and this is what the next generation, these younger generation of Americans that aren't entwined in all of the political battle of uh, being pro-life or, or anti-choice, uh, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that these kids, they look at these images, they see these images, and they're like, that's a child. That's yeah. a baby. Yeah. College campuses, same thing. So we're seeing a, a, an easy shift just simply because of the science that we have. But we're also seeing, Jason and I are seeing in the church as we travel the country and speak, there's an awakening of the body of Christ for life. Yeah, uh, and, and it's and it's so exciting because when we see what's happening in New York, is they expand their radical abortion laws and then they celebrate. Well, millions of Americans are not celebrating that anymore. They're they're mourning. Their 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 hearts are broken, and they're saying enough is enough. And so we're seeing a mobilization not only in New York but in states all across the country. Now we're seeing it's is don't you find it interesting that while Vermont and Virginia want to follow New York, you're follow you're seeing these other states going the exact opposite direction for life. And 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 what we're seeing now in the church is finally pastors who have been silent for so many years are actually starting to speak about it. Even some mm. larger churches here in Charlotte, mm. it's been very encouraging. Our phone rings off the hook, and I know other pro-life ministries as well are seeing the same thing. And I'm just looking at stats. Uh, a new poll indicates 54% of Americans say abortion, quote, goes against my personal beliefs. And, and Jason, with everything you went through, here it is that you and your family are going to be reality TV stars. Was was nothing you ever looked for. You didn't hire PR people to make it happen. People came to you, and you knew, okay, we're going to be able to get out a message of the gospel and our lifestyle, just just who we are for for the nation to see, and and it's going to be promoted and all this, and 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 even if you're not preaching the gospel in every show, you're 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 living out your principles, and then from there, people know who you are. Now you can share more plainly, and then those doors shut in your face. Did that discourage you or cause you to lose hope, or did you have a sense that God can turn this for greater good? Well, we, of course, had the sense that God could turn it for greater good, but it was difficult to go through in the meantime. Yeah. But what we learned from that is that when God places something in your hand, you've got to hold it with an open hand. Don't wrap your fingers around it and 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 all of a sudden now you're not willing to let it go. Otherwise, you become enslaved by that thing that God has given to you, whether that's a platform, whether that's a reputation, whether that's a gift, whether whatever that thing is that God has given to you. It might even be a promise where you need to hold that thing with an open hand like Abraham had to when he was promised Isaac, and then God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And so Abraham basically says, yes, sir. So he's holding it with an open hand because if you don't, then you begin to focus on the thing that you're holding in your hand and no longer the person who put the thing there to begin with. Yeah. And that thing becomes your idol and you become enslaved by it. So the, the key to being courageous and standing on the field of battle is first letting go of that thing that you're holding on to. You know, when your image, your influence, and your income is determined by people liking you, mm. then you're in a big, bad situation 
because you're holding on to something. And this is where we found that there are many pastors that won't speak about certain things that by God's grace you're a leading voice on. They won't speak about it because they're not willing to let go of that thing. And oftentimes it's a congregation, it's a reputation, it's a book deal, it's all of these things, and you've got to let that go. And so David and I learned to let go of the idea of having this reality platform that would give us this great voice, and uh, God showed us how to let that thing go. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that going through it was challenging, that it was it was hard and difficult to go through, because that's that's life. But what you get going through it is is wonderful, extraordinary. Again, friends, the new book, Bold and Broken by David and Jason Ben. We'll, we'll find out more about what's in the book in a moment. But David, something major is about to take place, a couple of things that you wanted to to mention to our audience, so go for it. Yeah, Jason and I are participating this Saturday in Richmond, Virginia, um, in another day of mourning. Uh, the first one was in Albany, New York. It was just a few weeks after New York passed their radical legislation for late-term abortion. And uh, and then the, the Virginia governor came out, and, yeah. I mean, just his comments were horrifying. Pro-infanticide under the right it, it really was. And, 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 and so while people are, quote, celebrating these legislative uh, efforts, millions upon millions upon millions of Americans, especially believers, are mourning. And so Elizabeth Johnston, the activist mommy, a great mother, lives here in the area. She said, you know what, I I believe that we need to have a day where we mourn, where we wear black, where we're fasting, and we get on our faces before God. So we did that with her and 4,000 people in in, uh, in New York. It was in, actually in uh, the—they call it the egg, which is up underneath the legislative assembly where they gather in New York. And it was—I mean, it was standing room only. They, they had overflow crowds. They actually simulcasted it in. There were 40,000 folks that were attending. Well— we decided, you know what, let's do this in Richmond as well, because you had Virginia and New York, really, that were leading voices in this infanticide. And so we're having this, it's uh, April the 6th, this Saturday, another day of mourning, where we get on our faces before the Lord, and what we want to do is just show God, Lord, there are people that are grieving over your little image bearers that are literally being dismembered. While people gleefully celebrate, there's a remnant of Americans, there's a remnant of your church that are getting on our faces and mourning these lives. And we, we believe that it's hopefully a fragrant incense to the Lord. Yeah, and, and for this to happen as there's pro-life legislation going forward in different parts of America, again, looking at some of these poll results Roughly a third of Americans ages 18 to 21 said their views on abortion have changed within the last five years, with the great majority of those changed going in a pro-life direction. Something really is up in the greater Charlotte area where we live. Christians are mobilizing. Many, many babies' lives are, are being saved. So this is, this is a time, friend, to get involved. And one thing everyone can do is go see the Unplanned movie. If, yes. you're, if, you're, if you're not there for the day of mourning, that's a, a group of people who could be there in Virginia. Go see Unplanned. If you've seen it, get tickets, invite others. A message is getting out through the movie in an unprecedented way. And, and Jason, just got, oh, two, three minutes to go. If you could give our audience uh, a, a nugget of something that God showed you in the Bold and Broken book that you want to convey, that, that if something they could take hold of, just, just I know there's a whole book, Phil, but just give us one. Well, I would definitely say that, you know, in the, in the cultural context that we have right now where there's chaos and confusion and all sorts of stuff going on, and you have that, that rise inside of you, just remember that your goal is to win the person and not your point. 
that if, if you've got that rise coming up inside of you, you've got to recognize that all people in some way, shape, or form are disconnected from the God who created them. And God wants you through, you know, being faithful, he wants you to be that bridge that connects the people who are disconnected uh, from him to him. It just just as we are taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if we see that, to recognize that God wants to use you, mm-hmm. that you can be that person, that you can be that conduit through which God can touch lives, then all you have to do is just continue to be faithful. You be you be bold because it's going to take boldness. But on that foundation of brokenness, that brokenness becomes the fuel for your boldness, and you do become a bridge between heaven and earth. And, and the love that you walk in, where does that come from? <laughs> it's time spent yeah. with the Lord, recognizing yeah. that I'm no worse in possibility than the worst criminal and worst sinner is in actuality. And, and, and even Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And trust me, Jason has been forgiven a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, humility is is seeing God, seeing yourself through the grid of who God is and who you are in relation to him. That will keep you humble, and that will keep you loving toward other people. My friends, get the new book by David and Jason Benham. And they both wrote the best parts of it. I'm not going to play partiality here. (laughs) Uh, So it's bold and broken. And and look, you can make a difference. We're here. We're not living in the days of slavery. We're not living in the days of Nazi Germany. We're not living in the days of the Roman atrocities and, and the persecution of Christians. We're living here. And right now we're living in a country that despite a loss of liberty still has much more liberty than most countries on the planet and much more liberty than most countries in world history. Let's use that liberty. So wherever you are, you're, look, I can't touch your neighborhood. I don't live there. I can't touch your family. I, I, I don't know them. But you're the one there in your business, in your school, in your neighborhood to make a difference in your local church. And where you see a need, perhaps God is calling you to be the one to meet that need. He wants to work through you. And in fact, that's the only ones he has to work through. No superstars here, just regular people redeemed by his blood. The new book, Bold and Broken, by David Jason Benham. Tomorrow, Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We'll be right back with you.